thing before, there's always something to celebrate every week. Last week, I forgot to acknowledge Amanda. You graduated. Where did you graduate from? Columbus State. State. Let's hear it. Anybody else have some kind of a milestone this last week? There's probably 10 people that did, and you don't want to stand up and say it, but you're amongst family. Come on. Okay, shame on you if you didn't say it. I'll get you next week because I'll find out about it, whoever it is. But we, we want to celebrate those kinds of things with you guys. Uh, hey, I'm going to be really straightforward today, teaching-wise. We're, we're going to finish what we've been studying in First Peter. Uh, and here's the takeaway points, real, really straightforward. Following Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus... You're going to have to learn to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Okay? We're looking at a book, a letter, 1 Peter. And we we told you, Peter wrote this letter to Christians who lived in what is modern-day Turkey. Most of them were people who we would call migrant workers. They were contract workers. They were sort of outsiders. They were the minority in a majority community. And besides the fact that they weren't, that wasn't their hometown or their home country, they were also followers of Jesus in a, in a largely pagan world. And so this really created some tension for them, especially, I mean, beyond following Jesus, they had tension in that kind of an environment because they were different. And Peter picks up on that and tells them, that's your identity, to be different. Being different isn't bad, it's good. But what he's saying is being different the way Jesus is inviting you to be different is going to make you feel uncomfortable. That you're going to feel uncomfortable in your own skin for a little while as you start following Jesus. And and the thing is, if you become comfortable with being uncomfortable, it leads to amazing things. But a lot of us, you know, we have a comfort zone, uh, otherwise called a rut, and we just live in that. And we, you know, it's like we're on uh, automatic pilot. And we miss the life that God has for us because we are uncomfortable with being uncomfortable and we don't want to change. And so Peter, here in chapter 4 is where we're going to start reading. Peter says to them, and he takes this little theme, and all the way through this book, he says it this way, then he says it this way, then he switches it around and says it this way, says it this way. Because back then and now, we're all uncomfortable with feeling uncomfortable. In fact, when we're invited into feeling uncomfortable, we resist it. So there's two things he tells them that in this, from verse 1 to verse 11, we're going to read here, that are not things that are easy to get comfortable with. We're going to feel uncomfortable in these circumstances, but if we press through that feeling uncomfortable, we'll get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. You will. And I don't mean in a bad way, because, you know, we can build up tolerance to bad things. You guys know that? Anybody here not know that you can build up incredible tolerance to bad things? Ever gotten really bad credit card debt? 
you can just get feel completely comfortable with that. And paying the minimum on that bill that comes in every month. Because that credit card, it just it it's this magic thing that makes you feel better every time you swipe it. We don't have to swipe it anymore. You just get the credit card near the little kiosk. You wave your phone towards it. Pretty soon you're just going to be able to snap your fingers and get in debt. But you can get comfortable with things that are not good things to be comfortable with. But Peter tells us here that there are some things that we can, we're going to face if we're going to follow Jesus. There's two things he says. The first one here is he wants us to get comfortable with suffering for Jesus' sake. And so this first paragraph I want to read to you starts at verse 1. Follow what Peter says. And we're not going to be able to, there's a lot of themes in here. We're just going to focus on one part of it. Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into this same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they'll have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, the first part of this, he says Christ suffered, and we know Jesus was perfect. He suffered. The world around him constantly just did not like what he was saying. People were drawn to him, but he kept confronting them with their complicity and the mess that's our world. And not everybody was happy with that. And, and it's interesting that the people who seemed to be the most happy were the people who had the most power. And they had the most interest in keeping things the way that they were. And Jesus came along and challenged them. And in the end, they were the ones that had him killed, the people who had the most power. It's a sad thing. They were, they were gifted with responsibility to care for people and make wise choices and think for the common good. And they ended up opposing what was the very best thing that they could possibly do. And so Peter's saying following Jesus means you're going to live for his will instead of your own natural desires. Now, I know all of us know this. It's painful to say no to what you want, right? Isn't it? Isn't it? That, that was an enthusiastic response. Thank you. Isn't it painful to say no to what you want? We just have this momentum, this inertia, this internal personal inertia that I want what I want. And we get a lot of reinforcement. In fact, the whole marketing scheme of our economy seriously perpetuates this idea that you need to get what you want. And you can get it now. You can get it quickly. And even if it's not the best thing for you or other people, doesn't it feel good? And it, it gets dressed up. 
And we see, we, we see things constantly that are marketed to us that are undermining us as we look at it. It's undermining community. It's undermining people who are really, really vulnerable. It undermines the strongest people. And so Peter says that this world around them and around us, our world is different than theirs. Our world is characterized by what Robert Bella, he's a sociologist, called expressive individualism. Okay, let me, let me give you a, just a second, I want to give you a quick definition of this. So expressive, expressive individualism is the idea that your identity comes through self-expression and that through discovering your most authentic desires and being free to be your authentic self is how you find yourself. So whatever those desires are, that's you. There's no question that your desires might be a little twisted, that your desires might be a little dangerous to indulge, that you should check your desires at the door ever. And we can see in our culture right now what's happening is we're, we've freed everyone and, uh, to pursue expressive individualism. And our, our culture is like a bumper car ride. Can you see it? It's just like, except we're not in these nice, comfortable, little, safe bumper cars. This is like the Indy 500, and we're just careening. You know, not, everybody's not driving in the same direction. Other people go, I don't like to drive counterclockwise. I want to drive my Indy racing car at 220 miles an hour the other way, because that's my authentic self. And we just empower that, and we're trying to figure out We've created something. How do we make this work? And this is just getting reinforced to us over and over and over. No one's stopping and saying, maybe the problem is that this presumption we have that we will, we will find our true selves and our, and our deepest fulfillment in doing whatever we want to do is the problem behind all this havoc that we're experiencing. And so Peter says, if you follow Jesus instead of your own desires, people are going to look at you and say, you're strange. You're strange. And I looked that word up in the Greek, and you know what it means? It means to be strange. <laughs> That's really all it means. Very accurate translation. And do you ever want to feel strange in, in your group? Do you ever want to, like, stand out? Don't you want to just fit in? There's a pressure in that that exert, it exerts itself upon us, and it seeks to conform us. And Peter says, if you say this, this way of life, and he, he, he was describing some pretty extreme kind of living, like radical party life, and that was pretty common in the ancient world. That, you know, we think, gosh, man, that's like that, you know, uh, what's that club in New York that they had a movie about? Something 21? Studio 54. Studio 54. Thank you. It wasn't 21. Wrong numbers. Yeah. I wanted to get in there as soon as I turned 21, but 
Studio 54 is a pretty debauched place. And we look at that and think, that is like a picture of excess. And, you know, like, that, I'm glad that went on behind closed doors. That was pretty common in the ancient world. That was the way people lived. People didn't feel like there was any, anything wrong with orgies and debauchery and drunkenness and parties that went on and on and on and just crazy stuff. You know, sex workers were part of parties. And he says, if you don't want to do that, you're going to be strange. Now, here's the thing. Here's where we've gone to, though, now. If you want to follow Jesus and you get into certain areas now that have, that have been accepted, people are going to shame you for following Jesus. They're going to shame you for convictions that you have that you know are right. I was talking to a young guy the other day who's a graphic artist. And the company that he works uh, with, uh, they use all pirated software. They don't buy any of their software. You know, there's all kinds of, I, I didn't know this, but you can go on the web and you can get pirated software. And there's like keys and things and you can load it up on your computer. And they're, they're going to try to track you down and get money from you and maybe, you know, sue you and uh, file charges against you. But I guess there's just a whole economy out there where people use pirated software. And this young guy, he's a, he's a younger believer. He just said, you know, John, I just started feeling bad about that. And so I took all the pirated software off my work you know, desk, my, my computer. And he said, uh, my boss came over to me and said, why are you using that software? Because he said, I've got some free software. It's not as good as the pirated software. But he says, we have to buy our own software. And so what everybody does is everybody just pirates the software. We all tell each other where to get it. He said, I just, one day I was thinking about it, I was thinking, what if I wrote that software and that was my living, that was the way I paid my, you know, paid for my home and my kids and, you know, money I gave uh, to help people. He said, I would be stealing from, people would be stealing from me. And he said, you know, Jesus said, treat other people the way you want to be treated. So he said, I just decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. And it was like all hell broke loose where he worked. And he wasn't like, dropping a dime on people. You know where I work? You know, he wasn't calling Microsoft and saying, hey, you know, check this, come and show up and look at the desktops of this business, you know. And he's, you know, but you didn't hear it from me. He wasn't doing that. He just wasn't doing it. And he got a world of grief for that. And I've told, like, I told a lot of people that have been close to me, don't download don't pay for. That's wrong. And I've had younger people look at me like, and they didn't say it, but they go, you're strange. And I go, I, I, I reason the same way, you know, that my young friend reasoned with himself. I think the spirit speaking to him. And they just look at me like, you know, no habla, senor. <laughs> and that's what happens is because there is a herd instinct within this expressive individualism that's, that's so powerful that if you stand up against it nowadays, you will get shamed. You will get mob shamed. I mean, things that are the most fundamental, basic kinds of normalcy and decency, for you to do that, you will get put down for it. And let me tell you something. It's no fun to experience that. I like people to like me. You like people to like you. We're meant to be cared for by each other and for what 
people think about you to matter. God didn't mean for us to live the way we're living. It's hard to go against the grain. And that's what we face if you're going to follow Jesus. Because if you decide to say, I'm not, I'm going to try to figure out where my desires line up with God's desires and follow them. But if my desires don't line up with God's desires, I'm going to resist them. And I'm going to ask for God's help not to give in to those things. Because you see, not every desire that's in you is bad. God's put desires in you. Sometimes it's about the timing of when you fulfill those desires. Those of you that are dating, just a hint, just thought I'd just slip that in there. Right? You like that, Jay? Okay, Jay, Jay's married. You don't have to worry about that. So how do we get here? Why, why on earth can we, why do we have to suffer when we're doing the right thing? How do things get that bad? Well, you, there's the, in the narrative of the Bible, there's, this, there's, there's the story of creation and then the story of how things went sideways. And it's called the fall. And it's just interesting. I, I'm really tempted to go on a long rabbit trail on this, but the first part of the Bible, pray for me right now. All of you pray. Pray. One of my desires to go on a rabbit trail may not line up with God's desire, so I'm going to try to resist it. But I've got to make this point. When God made humanity, here's what happened. Humanity became tempted to not observe the truth that God was the ruler of all things, and he had made them to rule with him, but under him, to partner with him, but to submit to his impulses and his goodwill. And they were tempted, and if you've ever read the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament, where uh, the snake starts talking in the, in the book of Genesis, and you go, this is really weird, you know, this is strange, just some kind of weird, twisted fairy tale. The reason why the author of Genesis put that in there was just to get your attention. You understand? It's a literary device. The people that would read Genesis were supposed to go, what does this mean? This is strange. Snakes don't talk. You know, we, aren't the f we, we didn't figure out in the 21st century that there's no talking snakes around. You understand? They knew back then that snakes didn't talk. They didn't walk around and run into a, you know, there's a boa constrictor just chatting away, you know, speaking several human languages. It's, it's a literary device to get your attention, to make you stop and go, what's going on here? This is unusual. This is weird. There's some kind of symbolism at work here. And we don't read Hebrew, but if you read Hebrew, the word for serpent, Satan, is a word that Hebrews used for a diviner, or like someone who operated with the occult. It was also a word related to the Hebrew word for light, for shining. It's a picture of wisdom. And so this divine being who God had created with power was trying to collude, or trying to draw. So heaven was trying to draw earth into rebellion against God. And the temptation was this. It was the introduction of expressive individualism, saying, you can be God. You can make up what's right and wrong. You can have your own truth. Because God defines what's truth, and we don't get to define what's truth. He does. 
And they were saying, you can be like him. You can kind of like take that, just get that off your shoulders. Just get that yoke off of your back. Don't, don't bow down to the man. And so at that point, they were, that, that, what's really interesting about that story, if you read Genesis 1 to 11, each story replays that same narrative because the next story is where Cain and Abel have this deal going on, and Cain has uh, kind of jealousy towards his brother, and God speaks to him and says, Cain, listen, sin is crouching at your door, and it's, it's your, something inside you is like an animal that wants to devour you. You have to resist it. Okay, so the first... And he's saying, you can do what you want, Cain. You can kill your brother. And you can get away with it. Resist that. So that story, the next, you keep going on. There's a story in there like uh, where all the people are building a city. And they build this tower where they're going to establish their own empire. And they're going to run things their own way. And God comes down and he divides their languages because there's this unity around rebelliousness that's forming. And he knows that that's going to destroy everything that they're trying to build. And so he divides their languages. It's, it's like a divine judgment against them. But you see in just those three stories, I'm not going to tell you the other ones. First, there's a devil who's coming and who's pushing this narrative of, Go your own way. Then inside Cain is this voice that's saying, go your own way. And then there's a world system. There's like, it, it becomes part of society. There's a message that says, go your own way. And with each one, there's just, it's tragic what happens. And so we want, what we want is we want the kingdom that God's made, but we don't want the king. And we see, you know, in, in our modern society, we want the, 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 the way of Jesus without Jesus. We want to address poverty without Jesus. We want to address injustice without Jesus. We want to address all kinds of things without Jesus. But what we're devolving into is this religion of politics. Where if you're on the right, the other side is just evil. If you're on the left, the other side is evil. And there are people, there, there, there have been people who have said this 50 years ago, this was going to happen in our culture because we wanted a kingdom without a king. And there, there isn't one. We want to say what's right and wrong. And when we do that, we remove, we remove the only cohesive element, the only element that's, co that's cohesive enough to hold all of us together. And we chuck it, and we try to insert our own wills, and it just creates this, you know, mess. So, this narrative kept happening, and so the gospel, what he says, he opens this, he says, since Christ suffered in his body, over and over and over in, in this letter, he says that the suffering of Jesus is this thing that breaks the power of this 
narrative, it's the only thing that can break the power of this narrative of do your own thing, go your own way, create your own truth. Self-expression is the only way that you'll ever find your true identity. Even though as we see it, there's never been a time in our history of my life, and I'm fairly well-read, I've never seen a nation grapple with identity the way that we're grappling with identity, the confusion around who we are, as great as it's ever been because this narrative that says you find who you are through individual self-expression is not the way to get there. There's, there's just enough truth in it to get us into trouble. There's other elements of truth that have to mesh with that. And so Jesus comes along, and he's, he, he's in a world that isn't as radically self-expressive as we are, but it's self-expressive in other broken ways. He comes into the system. There's never been a human being who said no to his own desires and yes to God perfectly his whole life. Everybody got corrupted. If you read Genesis 1 to 11, at chapter 12, God starts trying to find somebody who he can trust and who will begin to be a model like Adam and Eve were over and over and over. So, so Abraham was great until he wasn't. And Isaac was great until he wasn't. And Jacob was great. until he, And even the name Jacob. I, I mean, isn't it a great name when you're, you're born and your parents call you manipulator? I mean, that, maybe that might set the course of your life a little bit. You know, before you've done anything, your parents are saying, you're going to be a little manipulator. That's kind of, that kind of sucks. And you go through on and on and on. And then David, like this guy was the pinnacle of the best of Israel until he wasn't. And the story, the narrative is God's trying to find someone that, we, that he can depend on and we can depend on. And finally, he comes into the world in Jesus. And what does the world do to him? Because he confronts it, in the end, the world kills him. But God, in his wisdom, says, I'm going to use that thing, that tragic thing, to turn everything around. And so the gospel says, hey, this party went bad. This party went really bad, but I'm going to turn it around. I'm coming into it, and I'm changing it. And anybody that will follow him it, experiences the change, and they, and they also, if, if they follow him, if we follow him, we become contagious. We become contagious. Even the people who are radically opposed to us, anybody that follows Jesus, if you follow him and you're willing to suffer for him appropriately, not suffer for being like, like Peter makes a distinction here. He says, listen, if you're a knucklehead, you're going to suffer, right? So if you're a Christian and you're a knucklehead and you suffer, you deserve to suffer, but if you're doing the right thing and you're representing Jesus appropriately, humbly, winsomely, faithfully, you're going to suffer. But people who give you grief, it will haunt them to do that. Even if they don't say it, it will haunt them. And remember the story of, of Saul in the New Testament, this guy that's persecuting Christians. At a certain point, Jesus appears to him 
And Jesus says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, saying your conscience has been bothering you for a long time. We're God-haunted. We are. Everybody is. There's no meaning in all the freedom we've created. There's just no meaning. And when you find someone who's willing to suffer for a principle, it makes you stop and go, hmm, hmm. So the next section I want to read, I want to try to read this and get through it quickly here. In verse 7, look in Luke, I mean, uh, 1 Peter 4 with me. So after Paul says that about you have to get comfortable with suffering for Jesus' sake, he starts off and he says, we have to get comfortable with partnering with God, with partnering with God's spirit. So he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should be, uh, excuse me, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, let him do so. Oh, excuse me, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Now, the first, the first section we read is like a bad party. This next section, Peter's saying, God has a good party planned. Because one of the things you can say about the kingdom of God is it's meant to be a party. It's meant to be something that's life-giving. Have you ever been to a really good party? And it, it picks you up? Nobody? You guys really need to, you need to get out a little bit more. <laughs> Has anybody here ever been to a party that, that when you left it, you felt energized and better? Yes. Thank you. Gosh, there's one of us. I thought we were like all Amish. <laughs> Not that Amish don't have fun, but uh, sorry about that, Amish folks if you're here. What? They have a little less fun. Okay. Not quite as fun. Uh, when, when, when Peter says the end of all things is near, what he's saying is the kingdom of God has come. Because see, what happens when we go our own way, heaven and earth divide. Heaven and earth are meant to overlap. They're meant to connect. But when we go our own way, we push God away. Now, we can't push him away. He's here. But basically, we go, I just want to go about life on my own. And we become like, like you know, I say it often, cut flowers, like long stem roses, this beautiful, beautiful bloom. And you, you have those long stem roses in a bottle of water, but at a certain point, all the petals fall off, and all you have left is thorns. Why? Well, partially because roses have thorns. <laughs> but when you cut the stems off from the source of life, they're going to die. And so heaven and earth, people are walking around, and, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning said that, that all of creation is ablaze with the presence and glory of God. But most people can't see it. 
They can't feel it. Well, what Peter explains here is he says, if you're willing to suffer for what's right, if you're willing to align your, God, your, your will with God's will and follow Jesus, something happens. Heaven and earth are, are united, but you begin to experience it. And what God is trying to do is he's trying to use each of us and partner, excuse me, he's trying to partner with each of us to create something that, that his reality is expressed through and experienced like in an overflowing way. So, when he says, you have to, when the kingdom's here, uh, those of us in Western, the Western world like we are, we're very suspect of the supernatural. It's, it's hard to believe that the supernatural is right here with us. We want to believe in miracles. We want to believe God does things. God speaks. God guides. God heals. He provides. He protects. But I don't know. You know, it's kind of like, that's a little weird. It's a little, what's that word again? It's a little strange. And, and maybe even you feel ashamed if you think that. Maybe you've tried to believe that and you've been disappointed. And you wonder, how do you sort this out? Well, when he says, uh, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray, He's saying to them, they had a challenge in believing because they had a belief system that was foreign to the biblical belief system and they had to learn to sort the contradictions out and line their belief system up with what God says because you can't pray with any real impact and expectancy unless you line, again, your belief system up with God's belief system. Now, he says, there's, there's just a series of things here. So he says, we're supposed to love deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And we're supposed to show love by offering hospi- hospitality. We're supposed to show love by uh, using the 